This morning we'll be in Judges chapter 10, verses 17 through chapter 11, verse 28. The title of this morning's sermon is The Rejected Deliverer. The Rejected Deliverer. Well, as we've seen in the book of Judges, just a little recap so we know where we are in the history of this period. They've they've enjoyed 45 years of peace and prosperity under the Judges Tola and Yair. This has come to an end. Israel's apostasy has reached a high point. It's, It's symbolically complete and full because they're worshiping seven pantheons of gods now. And as a result of this, the Israelites who are in Gilead, that's the territory that is east of the Jordan River, whereas most of the Israelite tribal land allotments are west of the tribal, excuse me, the Jordan River. Um, there, are, there are some that are east. This is called the Transjordan or, the, or Gilead. So in this area, the Philistines and the Ammonites have crushed and shattered the tribes in Gilead. And so powerful are these enemies that they have crossed the Jordan and they've attacked the southern Israelite tribes, Judah, Benjamin, and Ephraim. And Israel cries out to the Lord to rescue them. And the Lord reminds them that he has rescued them seven times already, only to have them each time forsake him and again turn back to foreign gods. And now Yahweh tells them, go and cry out to the gods whom you have chosen. Let them save you in the time of your distress. And again, in crisis, Israel puts away these foreign gods and served the Lord, according to the text. There are a few big questions, though, that are left unanswered that we're going to look for as we move on in these accounts. What are these questions? Number one, is this genuine repentance on the part of the Israelites, or or is it another temporary bailout from their trouble that they are seeking? And will will God again rescue these stiff-necked people, or will he withdraw his hand from them and abandon them? So let's turn to the account now of, this, of the next judge, the, the, what we call a major judge, Yiftah, the Gileadite. And then the next two verses we're going to look at, they kind of set the stage for Israel's need to cry out for a deliverer. So let's look at Judges chapter 10, verses 17 through 18. And please follow along with me in your Bible as I read this. Then the Ammonites were called to arms, and they encamped in Gilead. And the people of Israel came together, and they encamped at Mizpah. And the people, the leaders of Gilead, said one to another, Who is the man who will begin to fight against the Ammonites? He shall be head over all the inhabitants of Gilead. So first thing we may wonder is who are the Ammonites? Well, they have a very interesting background. According to Genesis chapter 19, they, along with another group of people that they seem to always be closely aligned with, 
and whom they settle adjacent to, the Moabites. The Ammonites and the Moabites are the descendants of the offspring of the illicit relationship that Lot's daughters have with him after the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah. Now imagine these young unmarried women, they're with their father, they've been told by the angels that have come to see what's going on in these wicked cities and to, to bring destruction. They're, they're told to flee, and they do flee. But part of, part of the family's destroyed uh, because they don't obey the Lord's instructions. And, and they, they go into the hills, and they're looking down upon the cities of the plains. And imagine, if you will, something that looks like, I would think, like a nuclear attack. The cities are in flames. Fire has rained down from heaven. There's no living thing left. These daughters look out on this and think the world has come to an end. There's no men left. They will never have children. They seduce their father. They get him drunk. And they have offspring. And this sinful behavior on their part results in these, this group of, these two groups of people, the Ammonites and the Moabites, who are perpetual enemies of Israel. You see what sin does? It's just a, 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 an example that we see time and time again, how the sin of a person just echoes through the generations. But the, the Ammonites and the Moabites, um, as I said, they, they align with one another to attack the Israelites. In chapter 3 of Judges, we saw this, where Eglon, the fat calf of Moab, had the Ammonites help him in his war against Israel. So the Ammonites are constant enemies of Israel, up to about the second century BC, where they just seem to disappear. Um, they have their last war with the Jews about that time, and then they're not mentioned again in any of the Jewish literature. In verse 17 that we read just now, we're given the picture of a battle zone. Picture this in your mind. It's, it's a it's a it's a large area of land, there's two military camps set up. That's what the, the term, the Hebrew term that is translated in our Bibles as encampment. It has a military connotation to it. It's not like a campground. It's not like they're going out um, and enjoying the wilderness. There's a, there's a military uh, purpose to this. And the, the Ammonites, we're told, are mustering their troops. So they have a military commander who has called them to arms. The Israelites, on the other hand, they have no military leader to call out their troops. So this results in a desperate meeting amongst the Israelite leaders. We see this in verse 18. War is about to break out. They've, they've, they've brought the men of these tribes, the Israelite tribes, to a military encampment, but there are no military leaders. They're like, what do we do next? Remember, they'd been ruled by Yair and his 30 sons on 30 donkeys from 30 cities. And both the leadership of these tribes 
and the people had grown soft in the prosperity that they enjoyed, and they were completely unprepared to fight. And we see they're so desperate that they're willing to give complete control to anyone who will come to their rescue and deliver them. Now think about this. Isn't it interesting that the one who alone possesses the ability to rescue them from every trap, snare, and enemy, that is the Lord God, they refuse to bend the knee to. Yet, they will do so to some man who's yet unknown, coming from who knows where. They will give him all power. They will give everything to him to rescue them. This makes us wonder, does familiarity breed contempt? We, we hear that all the time. And are we seeing some truth in this? Have you noticed that many people seem willing to listen to strangers rather than those that they know well? It reminds me of a family member when... We used to go to Arizona to visit my folks. My stepfather was like that. He was always, he always was working on a project around their house. Um, and it, he was one of those guys that each project, which were, they were perpetual, required about 15 trips to the hardware store every, every day. So he was always going to the hardware store and he would come back and invariably he would tell us about some guy he met in line. He says, this is what this guy told me. This is what we should do. This is where we should move. This is where we should invest our money. This is what you need to do with your life. You talk to this guy for three minutes, maybe in line, and he is, he is this great sage. Why, why is it that, that people do that? And I don't think my stepfather was alone in this. I think that we see this all the time. When we know people well, we know their flaws and errors, don't we? So we, we, we hesitate maybe, and maybe rightfully so, to listen to uh, people we know. But we can be, people in general can be stiff-necked and refuse to do whatever they know, whatever suggested to them by someone they know. Because by doing that, they are giving a certain amount of credence certain amount of um, acknowledgement to someone close to them that maybe they don't want to deal with. But it's a different story if you're dealing with the guy in the line at a hardware store or a video on YouTube. Following the advice of a stranger allows us to retain a sense of independence and thought no matter how mistaken. Something along these lines might be is what's going on with the, the, the leaders of the Gileadites. They've, they, are, they should be in, they are, have been in a covenant relationship with Yahweh. They know Yahweh well. They know what Yahweh demands of them. If they find another rescuer, they have control over the relationship and the situation. They can promise them the world and maybe take that back. So the one they should be listening to is not a flawed human being. He is the Lord and creator of all things in heaven and on earth. And just two verses 
prior to, to the, one we just, the ones we just read, we read that Israel put away the foreign gods and served the Lord. Yet they do not turn to Yahweh for help and guidance. Rather, they are looking for a human answer to their dilemma. And the crisis that Israel is facing and their desperation to escape ruination are the factors that political philosophers have seen throughout history as leading to the rise of who they call the tyrant. Going back as far as Socrates, it was observed that human government takes three basic forms. Then later, his student, Aristotle, suggested, yes, these three forms, that's true, but they are three positive forms. There are negative aspects of these positive forms. We have monarchy, positive, and tyranny, which is the negative. We have aristocracy, the positive. We have oligarchy, the negative. And we have polity, which is an old word that basically our government, as, as set up by the, the founders in this country, was a polity. And opposite the negative factor, the negative version of polity is a democracy, which the ancient philosophers said this was the absolute worst of all. Democracy was just a disaster. And democracy would inevitably lead to the tyrant. And Roman statesman later, by the name of Cicero, he observes that governments change form in a cyclical fashion, each type being inherently unstable, one form moving to the next. And he described it was like the revolving of a wheel. And from this, he said, this is revolution. Well, we think of something a little bit different when we talk about revolution, but this is what Cicero was saying, this is is the first term of revolution in political philosophy. And it has to do with the natural change of government. And he says, eventually, an irresolvable crisis prevents itself. Then the tyrant arises. And people gladly yield all power and authority to the tyrant in exchange for safety and security. Just as the leaders of Gilead are prepared to do. Now, if we think about this, we've been very close to that stage in the last couple of years. And I truly don't believe that we are completely out of it yet. And if Cicero, Aristotle, Plato, and Socrates are all correct, then eventually this must happen. The tyrant must arise. Now, why am I talking about this? Cicero's theory of government revolution does have scriptural support. And it's evidence, again, that the world at large conforms to God's revealed word. What we see in the world is what we're told about in the Bible. And it's not that the human authors are taking what they observe and just saying, well, we're going to say God said this. No, God reveals, inspires his word to these men, and we see it accurately played out in our world. 
Fallen mankind searches for ideal rulership. It's like we go through a smorgasbord. And as we go from one dish to the next, looking for that ideal leadership, rulership, we're never satisfied. We enjoy one certain dish, but we grow tired of it. We become apathetic. We sample another dish, but find it unappetizing, and we spit it out. It's destructive, destructive nature. Then near the end of the line in the smorgasbord is a nice big heap and bowl of tyranny, which beckons us, and it seemingly has everything we want, primarily safety, stability, and control of a chaotic environment. Revolution, the spinning wheel of forms of human rule, really, when you think of it, it it's madness. It's, it's, it's repeating patterns. We're doing, hum, human, the human race does the same thing over and over again. We're trapped in our sin, but we, we miss this. We don't see it. Well, if we have a, a biblical worldview as Christians, we should see this. What is missing in all of this is God's rulership. God's rulership scares and offends most people because they think God is the tyrant. So they run from him. They reject him. Yet they spin the wheel of revolution and the arrow eventually always lands on tyranny. This brings us to my first point. Point number one. No matter what form of human government we live under, the Lord God is our ultimate ruler. No matter what form of human government we live under, the Lord God is our ultimate ruler. He is our Lord, our master, our ruler, our sovereign, our king. No human being or human organization can take the place of the Lord God in rulership over our hearts, minds, and bodies. God has created human government, though. And what does the Bible tell us? That human government rightfully enacted and rightfully performing is a minister of God, ministers for God, to bring good to the righteous and to... Take the wicked out of society. Protect the righteous from the wicked. But most human governments over, of every type, really, over the course of history, have attempted to control what people think. And this includes who or what people worship. The concept of freedom of religion, really, which we have experienced in our nation, is quite uncommon in history. But whether that concept of freedom of religion is acknowledged by people in government in the future, that does not change who God is. Neither does it, and I want you to hear me here clearly, neither does it change our responsibility to respond to the Lord's rulership. The Lord has rulership over every single thing in our lives and in our world. 
our Lord Jesus Christ is recorded in Matthew 28, 17, after his resurrection, when he meets his disciples on the mountain of Galilee, he tells them, all authority on heaven and earth has been given to me. All means complete, full, total, everything. There's nothing aside from the Lord Jesus' authority. He's not saying I have control over your spiritual life and what you do on Sunday and everything else belongs to someone or something else. No, he doesn't say that. And when he says on heaven and earth, what does that mean? That means everywhere. That there's no part of the cosmos that is excluded in this statement. No nation, no government, no legislative body, no individual has legitimacy to claim an exception from the Lord Jesus Christ's statement of authority. So, back to our story. The pacing of the story of what's going on between the Ammonites and the Gileadites, the Israelites, is interrupted for a bit for the introduction of our main character. So let's look at Judges chapter 11, verses 1 through 3. Follow along with me. Now, Yiftah, the Gileadite, was a mighty warrior, but he was the son of a prostitute. Gilead was the father of Yiftah, and Gilead's wife also bore him sons. And when his wife's sons grew up, they drove Yiftah out and said to him, You shall not have an inheritance in our father's house, for you are the son of another woman. Then Yiftah fled from his brothers and lived in the land of Tob. And worthless fellows collected around Yephtah and went out with him. Now this name that is given to Yephtah by his mother is, is meaningful. And we've seen this, haven't we? That, that these, these Hebrew names are telling us something. His name means he has opened. So his mother gives him this name in thanks for her firstborn child, which is a male who's opened her womb. This is a great blessing in the ancient world. Now, the he in he has opened does not refer to the baby boy. No, it refers to a deity, that that she's giving thanks to God or a God for giving her this son. Normally, we would expect that the name Yiftah, annexed to it would be Yiftah-Yah, which means Yahweh opened my womb, or Yephtah-El, God opened my womb, or Yephtah-Baal, the God Baal opened my womb. We're given no clues to this, so we don't know what the background is of Yephtah. How did his mother raise him religiously? But the circumstances of his birth is what is important. This has caused him great difficulties. Since his mother was not married to his father, he's called the son of another woman. Now, in the very... The, the, the ancient Hebrews, they're like, um, they're like what the British used to be. You know, their, their insults don't sound like insults to us, you know, rough-hewn uh, colonists in, in the United States. They sound very polite, but if you know... British idioms, they, they can be very, um, very uh, sharp. And the, the Jews are the same way. They're very modest people, and so they're not going to say something crass. They're just calling him the son of another woman. 
Meaning, he's not the son of a wife or even a concubine. He's not entitled to any inheritance. Even though apparently from the text, we can surmise he was raised in the household because he was thrown out. So he had to live there. His half-brothers drive him out of the house. They'll broach no competition from the son of a harlot, is what they're saying. No competition for their father's inheritance from a child who came from a prostitute. So greed and jealousy are the motivating factors here. We can only imagine what life was like for this boy growing up in this household. And as a result, he was not a soft man. He was a hard man. He flees his father's house and becomes an exile in this place we're called as the land of Tob. Tob, ironically, means good. Because it's ironic because for Yephthah, this place good is a place of alienation, rejection, and disinheritance. It's not good for Yephthah. Where other social misfits gather around him and went out with him, according to verse 3. Now, in the ESV, the band that surrounds Yephthah, they're called worthless fellows. In various other translations, they're called scoundrels, they're called outlaws. But the Hebrew term for worthless fellows means literally empty men. That's sad. But I think it's what we're seeing in our culture with a lot of our young men. They are empty men. And this this term that ESV translates as worthless, which literally means empty, by itself it does not necessarily imply immorality or dishonesty. What it implies is the, that the, the one being spoken of lacks the, the qualities which command success in the leading of a regular life, like especially the lack of material goods, such as property and, and social status. So yes, you know, undoubtedly, I would say Yephthah and his men probably live as raiders. But in the description, it's like they, 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 they're... As I said, like they're like social misfits more than just bad seeds that want to turn to a life of crime. But as sociably undesirable as Yephthah may be, he's a survivor. He's a seasoned fighter, and he's a natural leader with men and also, I would presume, equipment at his disposal. We're told immediately in verse 1 of chapter 11 before we learn anything about the fact that he was the, the son of another woman and you know, he got kicked out of the house, we're told that he is a mighty warrior or a gabor hayel. This Hebrew term means a man of strength, a man of substance. So these verses already present us with a paradox. The outcast with no social status is in fact a man of strength and substance. In two ways, in two senses. Number one, he is a mighty warrior. Number two, he's also a man with human and material resources at his command. That's what the Hebrew text is telling us. Even though he's kicked out of his house without an inheritance. He brings nothing with him to this place of good, Tob. But he produces something. This early mention of his prowess, his abilities in chapter 11, 
This sets him in stark contrast. I want you to see this with the leaders of Gilead at the end of chapter 10 who are cowering in their camp, not knowing what to do with the Ammonite threat. And what we see as we have dug into this, I think might provide us with the real motive for his brothers throwing him out of the the home. Yiftah is of such character, such personality, such makeup, that I think maybe his brothers feared being dominated by him. And the one with the least social status in the family climbing above all the others. He's a threat. They saw him as a threat. Okay, we've seen the main character here. Now what happens? Let's read on. Verses 4 through 11. We read, after a time, the Ammonites made war against Israel. And when the Ammonites made war against Israel, the elders of Gilead went to bring Yephthah from the land of Tob. And they said to Yephthah, come and be our leader that we may fight against the Ammonites. But Yephthah said to the elders of Gilead, did you not hate me and drive me out of my father's house? Why have you come to me now when you are in distress? And the elders of Gilead said to Yephthah, That is why we have turned to you now, that you may go with us and fight against the Ammonites and be our head over all the inhabitants of Gilead. Yephthah said to the elders of Gilead, If you bring me home again to fight against the Ammonites and the Lord gives them over to me, I will be your head. And the leaders of Gilead said to Yephthah, The Lord will be witness between us if we do not do as we say. So Yephthah went with the elders of Gilead And the people made him head and leader over them. And Yephthah spoke all his words before the Lord at Mizpah. So there's a lot there. But for us to fully see Yephthah in the way the text intends us to see Yephthah, the way the author, both divine and human, intends us to see Yephthah, We must see the similarity of narrative structure in the interaction we saw in verse, excuse me, chapter 10, in the interaction between Israel and Yahweh, what was going on between them, and what we see now in chapter 11 between the Gileadites and Yephthah. Now, this is something interesting that seems to have been missed by most commentators, except for Matthew Henry, in a somewhat limited form, and Dale Ralph Davis have, have seen this. And these parallels, I think, are too close to be coincidental. And we're going to look at them. And I hope you see what, I, what, what I'm aiming at here. And you make the decision if it's just coincidence or whether the Lord is drawing our attention to something here. So first, there's, a bunch, there's, a, there's several themes we want to look at that are reflected in both of these accounts. And the first is the theme of rejection. Both Yahweh and Yephthah are rejected by their people. We see this in chapter 10, verse 6. The people of Israel again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, and they forsook the Lord and did not serve him. Yephthah's Yephthah's rejection, chapter 11, verses 1 through 3. They, his brothers, drove Yephthah out and said to him, You shall not have inheritance or in our father's house, for you are the son of another woman. We have the theme of distress in both cases. Rejection, 
that occurred is followed by periods of grave peril for Israel. In chapter 10, beginning at verse 7, we see the anger of the Lord is kindled against Israel, and he sells them into the hand of the Philistines and into the hand of the Ammonites. For 18 years, these foreigners oppressed all the people of Israel who were in Gilead, and the Ammonites even crossed the Jordan, as I said earlier, to fight against the southern tribes so that Israel was severely distressed. In chapter 11, we read, after a time the Ammonites made war against Israel. That's the distress at the time of Yephtah. Then we have the theme of repentance. When the Israelites are in a jam, they cry out to Yahweh to bail them out, just as the leaders of Gilead do to Jephthah. We see it in chapter 10, verse 10. And the people of Israel cried out to the Lord, saying, We have sinned against you because we have forsaken our God and have served the Baals. In chapter 11, the elders of Gilead went to Jephthah and said, Come and be our leader that we may fight against the Ammonites. And there's this theme of objection. Both Yahweh's reply to the Israelites and Jephthah's reply to the Gileites show that they know someone is trying to use them. They're wary of a con going on. In chapter 10, the Lord said to the people of Israel, did I not save you? And he lists all these people he saved him from. I saved you out of their hand, yet you have forsaken me and served other gods. Therefore, I will save you no more. Yephthah, in chapter 11, says to the elders of Gilead, do you not hate me? Did you not drive me out of my father's house? Why have you come to me now when you're in distress? There's a theme of appeal. Both Israel and the Gileadites make an appeal that they hope will be irresistible to their hoped-for deliverer. To Yahweh, the people of Israel said to the Lord, We have sinned. Do to us whatever seems good to you. Only please deliver us this day. The elders of Gilead said to Yephthah in chapter 11, Go with us and fight against the Ammonites and be our head over all the inhabitants of Gilead. Then finally, we have this theme of acquiescence. Both Yahweh and Yephthah respond positively to Israel's crying out. In chapter 10, we are told that Yahweh could bear the misery of Israel no longer. In chapter 11, Yephthah says to the leaders of Gilead, if you bring me home again to fight against the Ammonites and the Lord gives them over to me, I will be your head. So the way the Gileadites treat Yephthah really is what we might call an acted parable of the way Israel approaches Yahweh. It's, It's the same thing. It just gets acted out. And consider how far... This is from the steadfast, loving loyalty as required by the covenant, the covenant people of the Lord. And Yephthah fared no better than the Lord God in this regard. This this brings us to my second point that I wish to make, which is we, as servants of the Lord, have no right to expect better treatment than the Lord himself receives. We, as servants of the Lord, have no right to expect better treatment than the Lord himself 
receives. The Lord Jesus in the Gospel of John, chapter 15, verse 20, it's recorded that he says, Remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you. If they kept my word, they will keep yours. Well, we're seeing a pattern similar to that um, that we saw in Judges. We, we can see this in the New Testament if we look closely. In the case of Israel and, and, and Jesus, it's like the Israelites and Yahweh or the Gileadites and Yephthah. Consider the second chapter of Acts on the day of Pentecost. Peter accuses Israel. He says, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. But then, a few verses later, Peter turns around and calls these same people he's accused of killing the Lord. He calls them to repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the, for the forgiveness of your sins. See, here's the kicker there. Israel must seek relief from the very one they had cast out, from the very one that they had murdered in the first century from the very one in the time of the judges that was tossed out of his dad's house. And before that, from the very one who made a covenant with them, whose covenant they broke and went after other gods. What is most striking in this, and this is what I want us to see, is that how the rejected, the cast out, the slandered, and the despised are used in the plan of God. Yephthah's situation, really, honestly, we have to consider, is hardly of his own making. He's more of a victim, although that, you know, I don't like allowing people to just pin the, the label victim on them, but I think he is here more than, and sinned against, more than um, you know, being a bad guy. He probably had no other options as to what happened to him apart from begging and starving than to lead other desperate men on raids. And this is a lifestyle that's hardly conducive to nourishing good ethics or social graces. And we're going to see as we go on in Yephthah's account, he is a deeply flawed man. And he does some, some troubling, hard-to-explain things. We need to, but I want us to balance that. I want, to, I want you to consider what we're learning about him now with what is going to come. Consider Yephthah's circumstances that we've gone over. He's the son of a harlot. He's been rejected by his brothers. He becomes a leader of social misfits, yet he's used by God to deliver Israel from its enemies. Those circumstances, think how strikingly similar they are to our Lord Jesus Christ. Mary, being an unmarried pregnant woman, was accused of harlotry. Jesus' brothers rejected him. They thought he was out of his mind. Neither did they believe what he said. The gospel makes that clear. Later, they did come to believe, and they became pillars in the church after their resurrected brother appears to them. And Jesus' followers, of course, included many who were considered undesirable by society. And these seemingly unfortunate and disadvantageous circumstances were chosen exactly 
decreed to the minutest detail to occur by the triune God before the creation of the world. Now, just about every Christian would agree to that statement when it comes to Jesus, the Son of God. Yes, that, that was all established. Yes, that was the plan. Yet the same applies to Yephthah, the Gileadite. And that is what is difficult for people to see, that God has planned in minute detail these circumstances of this man's life. Maybe someday, after we see it enough times in Scripture, and it's there over and over again, we'll stop being surprised at God's unlikely instruments of deliverance. We'll stop looking at to the great and the mighty and the powerful and the wealthy and the, and the good-looking and the good speakers as being the ones who deliver us. Those aren't the ones that God uses through the pages of this book, brothers and sisters. We've seen it. We know that. Now, Yephthah turns his attention to the king of the Ammonites, which begins with a verbal conflict. And the first thing Yephthah asks this king is, why are you attacking us? Well, that's a really good question. So let's read on verses 12 through 13. Then Yephthah sent messengers to the king of the Ammonites and said, What do you have against me that you've come to me to fight against my land? And the king of the Ammonites answered the messengers of Yephthah, Because Israel, on coming up from Egypt, took away my land from the Ammon to the Jabbok and to the Jordan. Now, therefore, restore it peaceably. So the king is accusing Israel of stealing his land, and he demands that they give it back or else. This is an age-old story in human history, isn't it? That was my land. You give it back to me. I'm taking it. doesn't matter if you're in North America or if you're in Eastern Europe or if you're in the Holy Land. The same thing. Happening over and over again. And Yephthah answers the king in verses 15 through 27 that we're going to look at. And the first half of his answer, the longest part, verses 15 through 22, is a historical review of what actually happened in the past. Yephthah in this is essentially saying, look, let's get the facts straight. He realizes that this king is prevaricating, making things up. Politicians do that. Let's read on, verses 15. 14 to 22, Yephthah again sent messengers to the king of the Ammonites and said to him, thus says Yephthah, Israel did not take away the land of Moab or the land of the Ammonites. But when they came up from Egypt, Israel went through the wilderness to the Red Sea and came to Kadesh. Israel then sent messengers to the king of Edom saying, please let us pass through your land. But the king of Edom would not listen. And they sent also to the king of Moab, but he would not consent. So Israel remained at Kadesh. Then they journeyed through the wilderness and went around the land of Edom and the land of Moab and arrived on the east side of the land of Moab and camped on the other side of the, Am of the Arnon. But they did not enter the territory of Moab, for the Arnon was the boundary of Moab. Israel then sent messengers to Sion, king of the Amorites, king of Heshbon. And Israel said to him, "'Please let us pass through our land to our country.' But Sihon did not trust Israel to pass through his territory. So Sihon gathered all of his people together and encamped at, at Yahaz and fought with Israel. And the Lord, the God of Israel, gave Sihon and all of his people into the hand of Israel, and they defeated them. So Israel took possession of all the land 
of the Amorites who inhabited that country. And they took possession of all the territory of the Amorites from the Arnon to the Yabuk and from the wilderness to the Jordan. Yephthah is making an argument here from history, denying that Israel took the land from the Ammonites. We didn't read anything about Ammonites in that passage, did we? Their king claimed falsely that this was their land, but no, it wasn't. The Ammonites were not in the land at that time. It belonged to the Amorites. So Yephthah is saying to this king, stop twisting history to suit your purposes. And so far, Yephthah's account has dealt with matters of history, things that are in the domain of public knowledge that can be known by any people that want to investigate. Historically, Israel sought right of passage through this land, and it was refused, and a battle ensued. Yephthah could have continued in this matter-of-fact fashion to this king by simply reporting that Israel defeated Sehon. But instead, and very significantly, he takes matters onto a higher plane by arguing from a theological perspective that Israel defeated Sion because Israel, excuse me, Yahweh, Israel's God, gave Sehon and all of his people into Israel's hand. This was the Lord's doing. This brings us to the last point I want to make, point number three. The Lord can do what he pleases with all things, giving whatever he pleases to whomever he pleases. The Lord can do what he pleases with all things, giving whatever he pleases to whomever he pleases. Continuing on, verses 23 through 26. Yephthah is going on with his argument. And he's saying, So then the Lord, the God of Israel, dispossessed the Amorites from before his people Israel, and you are to take possession, and are you to take possession of them? Will you not possess what Kemush, your God, gives you to possess, and all that the Lord our God has dispossessed before us? We will possess. Now, are you any better than Balak, the son of Sepor, king of Moab, did he ever contend against Israel? Did he ever go to war with them? Well, Israel lived in Heshbon and its villages, and in Aror and its villages, and all the cities that are on the banks of the Arnon, 300 years. Why did you not deliver them within that time? He's waited. This king's waited 300 years. He's let the Israelites be where they are for this length of time. What Yephthah is saying is Yahweh gave Israel the land of say. Uh, of Sehan, the king of the Amorites. It was a divine gift. Simple as that. Yephthah tells this king that he just has to be consent, content with whatever Kemush, your God, gives you to possess. Now, this really is an odd statement because the chief god of the Amorites is Molech, not Kemush. Kemush is the chief deity of the Moabites. So what's going on here? Is Yephthah confused? Or is this an insult to the king of the Amorites? Both resolutions have been proposed by commentators. But I think there's something else going on. Yephthah's reference to Balak, king of Moab, I think is the key to the answer here. And this is it. The land of the Amorites 
now occupy, where they are right now, at the time of this encounter, was formerly Moabite land. So the Ammonite, the Amorites, excuse me, are now in the land of Kemush. And thus they are subject to whatever Kemush gives them. See, the common belief of the ancient Near East was the territorial power of gods. As an example, the gods of Israel had, excuse me, the gods of Egypt held power in Egypt. The gods of Babylon held power in Babylon. And Kemush held power in Moabite territory. However, the Old Testament reveals something completely new and different. The God of Israel, Yahweh, excuse me, was unlimited in power and authority. We read in Deuteronomy, chapter 2 of Deuteronomy says that God divided borders and, excuse me, that Yahweh gives land to both Israel and Ammon. That it's the Lord God who does this. And later on in Deuteronomy, in chapter 32, it even says that God established the borders and formed the nations and gave people their land. So Yephthah is not conceding here to the notion that a pagan god is equivalent to the Lord God. No, he's exercising diplomacy in order to get his adversary to accept the legitimacy of Israel's claim to the territory in question. He wraps up his argument in verse 27. He says, I therefore, Yephthah to the king, I therefore have not sinned against you, and you do me wrong by making war on me. The Lord, the judge, decided this day between the people of Israel and the people of Ammon. So diplomacy is now over. Yephthah speaks like a litigator in a courtroom. He's summing up his case to prevent to the judge. And since the judge in question is the Lord, the categories Yephthah uses are moral and theological. Yephthah and Israel have not sinned against the Ammonites. It is the Ammonites who have sinned and done wrong by making war against Yephthah and his people. This is, in sum, what he has been saying all along. But now he states it in the clearest possible terms. And while it is ostensibly spoken to his human adversary, it is not intended primarily for this foreign king's ears or aimed at securing a favorable response from this king. There's no agreeable reasonableness now on Yephthah's part or concessions for the sake of argument. That time is over. Instead, the theological summary of this case is primarily for the ears of Yahweh, on whom Yephthah now depends utterly for a favorable outcome. His appeal to the Lord to judge between him and his adversary today is, in effect, a declaration of war. At the same time, it expresses a belief that the issue will be settled in heaven by the decision of the divine judge before it is settled on earth by trial of arms, by combat, by warfare. So it is neither Yephthah himself nor the Ammonite king who will have the final say, nor is it Kemush or any other god who will have the final say. The Lord God alone will decide. So there's two important elements to point out in this account that we've covered today. First is the reference to Yahweh as the judge in verse 27. Now that's striking. 
coming as it does at the climax of this episode, and it's of considerable importance for the theology of this entire book of Judges. It reminds us that the book of Judges is more is about more than the human judges, the warrior leaders of Israel. It's fundamentally a theological work. Behind all these human judges we're reading about stands Yahweh, the judge, who causes all things and determines the outcome of all things. And secondly, what we have seen in Yephthah's argument to the Amorite king, I think is the best explanation for Yephthah's inclusion among the faithful of Israel in Hebrews chapter 11, what we call the hall of faith. Because some of the stuff that Yephthah is going to do makes us wonder, how did this guy get his name in here? But what we see now, I think, is what gets him inclusion as a faithful servant of the Lord. Yephthah, see, takes his leadership responsibilities seriously. He's doing much better than one would expect. And he discharges his duties with maturity and impressive skill. But that's not it. No, most of all, he knows that it is Yahweh who is ultimately the ruler in this that the Lord God has ultimate rulership over all things. Yephthah realizes that he is utterly dependent on God for the victory he hopes for. And he stakes everything on God giving it to him. That, brothers and sisters, is faith. And that is why I think Yephthah is in the book of Hebrews, chapter 11. So the last line of this chapter, chapter this that we're covering today, Verse 28, but the king of the Ammonites did not listen to the words of Yephthah that he sent to him. And this is hardly surprising, is it? I don't think any of you are shocked by that. Aren't we rather more surprised when the world listens to a servant of the Lord than when they don't? That would be surprising. It does happen. This pagan king knows Israel is in a very weak condition. And probably the most persuasive argument in the world, which I think Yephthah comes really close to, wouldn't dissuade him from his territorial ambitions. When nations, when wicked rulers see something they want, reasonableness, logic, precedence of law go out the window. Even preaching the word of the Lord to them is often ignored. But with, as with Yephthah, our job, and this is the application here that I want you to take away, our job is not winning the argument or the battle. Our job is to be faithful to the Lord in all things. Faithfulness is wholehearted. It's not half-hearted. Like Yephthah, we know that the outcome events are always in the hands of the Lord. So like him, we can boldly stand against evil, even when it appears most powerful. And in a later battle against the Ammonites, who rise up against against, uh, Israel during the time of David the king, the commander of his armies, Yoav, he says this in 2 Samuel 10, 12. And this is what I want to close with. And this is what I want you to consider. He says, be of good courage. And let us be courageous for our people and for the cities of our God. And may the Lord do what seems good to him. 
Now the cities of our God. Consider which cities are being talked about. In our sense, there not one single city on the face of this planet is excluded from that. Because what did Jesus say? All authority has been given to me on heaven and earth. So it's not just the cities of Israel anymore. It's the entire globe. Join me as we pray. Heavenly Father, we give thanks for your word. We give thanks for your love. We give thanks for the fact that you are our king, our ruler, our sovereign, our Lord. We give thanks for the fact that you are great and good and that you love us and that you give us the best, Father. We ask that, we're, that we are given a spirit of discernment that we may know this, that we're given a spirit of patience so that we can go through trying times. Give us a spirit to focus on our God, to focus on the cross of Christ, to focus on the position that we have been given in all eternity. Father, I give thanks for those who are gathered here today. I give thanks for those who are listening on the internet, on sermon audio. Father, I give thanks for every single brother and sister who is here today. It does my heart good to see those who have been away for a short period of time because of illness. Father, I give thanks that they've returned to us. I pray for those that aren't among us. I pray for Amanda and James and baby Edward. Father, we give thanks for this new life. We give thanks for life, Lord. We give thanks for babies. We give thanks for the cries of the little ones in our congregation. (laughs) And we give thanks for the dances they do in the aisle. Father, bless this day. May we be focused on you. Bless us as we go out from here. Bless the time of fellowship that is to follow. Father, we ask for blessings upon the evening service and Pastor Steve as he brings the word to us again. And Father, we give thanks and ask for blessings upon the Lord's table as we gather for that supper. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.